Hey team, it's Matt Drinkon here. And you might have heard, my brand new book releases on Amazon on March 8th. It's been a labor of love that I think can really help you navigate some of the challenges you're experiencing in your own life. I go over toxic positivity and how to think you're in it for everyone else. In reality, you're in it for yourself. And I express that through this entire book and help learn from our own mistakes and how to turn the lens on ourselves and ask good questions. So go to Amazon on March 8th and you can get the Kindle version for only 99 cents. Just search for the book title, The Eternal Optimist. It's never too late. And you can download it directly to your device. That's it for me. Let's get into today's episode. Hello and welcome to the Eternal Optimist podcast. My name is Matt Drinkon and I am your host today. And this show, we are all about helping you get your confidence right, your inner game on par with where you want it. Help you level up your thinking, help you get comfortable in your own skin. All these things and many more on the quest for inner peace, on the quest for the search for truth. That's what the Eternal Optimist podcast is all about, giving you hope and helping you along on your journey. Before we get started today, I want to encourage you that you can connect with me on social media. Follow me at Instagram and Facebook at Eternal Optimist Podcast. Today's episode is a doozy. I'll begin with a quote from today's guest. Be the captain of your future. And on that note, I welcome you to my conversation with Ezra Max. Ezra Max. This is powerful today. Ezra was a first responder on 9-11. And he goes into detail about his experience. In his post 9-11 meltdown, he shares in depth the ride in the EMS vehicle as he was driving in the middle of the terrorist attack. Ezra is someone that this conversation, it's a different type of conversation. We just dive right in and start going, start recording. There's no intro. We just start talking and we go all over the place. This is a high, I would say a high ADD conversation. (laughs) I had a real, real fun time with it and a real emotional time with it real amazing conversation today. We go to a number of different directions. We start off in Brooklyn, 9-11, his experience on the ground, debris hitting him and he's seeing it go all around him. He shares stories about those who risk their lives to save others, sharing real stories and showing real leadership. Notice how Ezra, he doesn't say but, but only uses and, he's a big builder. He's all about helping people figure out how to get where they want to go. So. At the end of this discussion, you'll hear Ezra, www.ezramax.com slash connecting is a place to find him. You can also find him on LinkedIn. Ezra is amazing. I'm gonna, no further ado, let's dive right into this conversation with my dear friend and someone I respect very deeply, Rabbi Ezra Max. Enjoy. Hello, and welcome to the Eternal Optimist Podcast the show for optimists by optimists. This is the show for people who see the good in the world and want to make a positive difference in the lives of their families and communities. Each week, you'll hear inspiring stories that will get you thinking bigger and playing more offense in life. With your host and high-performance coach, Matt Drinkon. How you flow through it. From, oh, there we go. Actual recording is higher quality. Go figure. Who would have thunk? The, uh, what, where you started from and where you're up to in your iteration of this podcast is beautiful to behold. Cool. You always bring good, positive energy. You are the optimist. And it's funny. I was thinking, am I optimistic enough 
to be on the Optimist podcast. And we all have our little voices back there and the way that you just flow with your guests and you have had some incredible, I've listened to a few of your recent interviews. Amazing, great people and such awesome messages. And so now, of course, the game is up. How do I show up and perform for your listeners or for your viewers? And I believe my life has prepared me for this moment. So I'm looking forward to see what emerges. I think so. I mean, I... I... Thank you for having me. Well, it's a sincere pleasure. The pleasure's on my end for sure, Ezra, because I remember meeting you for the first time in the exchange community. And ever since then, you have been an optimist to me. You have been someone I've gained value every time I've been around you. So this is not, uh, is Ezra an optimist or not? You've, you've definitely added value in my world and in my life. And I'm certain that you've done it in many other people's lives. So it was a no brainer to have you on the show. And yeah, ready to rock and roll. So I appreciate that. I'm going to have all three of my daughters getting home in the next 20 minutes. So that that could be loud if I love that part about you. I've watched your girls come home while we've been on Zooms together. <laughs> and it, it literally reminds me mm. of back when, oh, in 99, 2000, 2001. So I had at that point two little ones with a third one on the way. And my boss at the time, I worked in corporate sales. So I covered the East Coast and then part of the Midwest. And my son would come home from playgroup and I was in the basement and we had these windows in the driveway. He'd get out of the car or he'd walk home with mom and he would pound on the windows until I either opened the window or I came outside. He actually cracked the window once or twice because he was banging and I didn't answer right away. And I pretty much just changed my schedule that from 3.40-ish till 4.30, whenever he would get home, that time zone, I just go hang out with them, the two little ones, almost every day. I miss that. <laughs> Yeah. Now I've got five adults. I've got my oldest is 25. My youngest is 16 going on 26. And so it's a whole nother level of attention. But now they want my attention at 1 a.m. when I'm sleeping. They'll knock on my door. They'll be in the middle of the night. They're like, they're ready to talk and catch up. And I aged. I used to be a night owl. Anyhow, <laughs> I love it when your kids come home and they come running through the room and you have the little toys around and you distract them quickly. But I, like you, value family first. Yes. And we're working to create a life. We're not working for life. life. Work is not life. If I want to quote the front row businessmen with family men with businesses, yeah, I almost said it backwards, versus businessmen with families. And I, I would overlay that in my world with spirituality first. It's, my kids actually created a Venn diagram for me, which is self, spirituality, and others. And they all come together. Okay. So if you think about it from the context of, I've got to be in touch with myself because... I am a me and you are a you and he is a he and she is a she. And if I want to get controversial, there might be other ones, but I'm pretty sure there's two. And then whatever you're want to talk from my perspective, spirituality is something that people relate to differently. But the God, someone told me is the grand organized designer. I think they, they said is what it stood for. I don't know. I've never, I heard that recently. The idea of a greater than our human capacity being that puts us all together and runs the show, aka God or spiritual director, super self-conscious about being preachy. So you'll hear me calibrating for an audience as opposed to just talking to myself. Okay. Um, yeah. And I, I love the inner dialogue. I love it. I do the same thing. So please continue. I, I, it gets weird because I don't talk to myself that way, but then I recognize that someone else who doesn't have my background or come from where I'm coming from, if I don't explain it, then I'm just talking to myself. I'm not actually interacting with another 
human being. And you pointed out earlier, I endeavor that every conversation in some way elevates whoever I'm with and hopefully myself as well. Well, I appreciate that. I'd like to do the same. I I know that. Help me understand then, Ezra, what are a couple things that our audience should know about you that they may not know from my two minute intro that I read about you. What are a oh, couple of things about you that we should know? A uh, impact talk. My name is Ezra. I have a middle name, Mayor. My parents used to be very adamant that people use both of them. Ezra is biblical, the prophet, the one or later prophets. His name was Ezra. Yes. And Ezra literally means help. And Mayor means to light or to enlighten, to light up. And so if I think about the story of my trajectory, but my, both my parents are immigrants. Three yeah. of my four grandparents were immigrants and where they were living and I'm the oldest of eight. And both of my Ooh. parents were teachers when I was a youngster. So oh. if you think about mindset of giving, doing for others, purpose, meaning, impact, leadership are all core elements. And then if you put that in with my namesake, with my, if it, if we believe that a name has some determination on who we are, and I would argue that any label we give anything automatically gives it a certain energy or flavor, um, whether it's, I don't know if you ever see the book, The Message in the Water, The Message in the Water, the Japanese researchers who took water and either yelled at it or played certain music near it or put labels on the jar, and then they froze the molecules and looked at it with an atomic microscope. And the structure, the molecular structure of the water appeared in conjunction with the mean angry messages or the uplifting positive messages. It's incredible. Huh. I think it's called The Message in the Water by a, a Japanese author. And if it, I'll look for it and I'll send it to you. I don't know off the top of my head. I'm looking to see if it's on my shelf and I can grab it quick. I, I don't know. Maybe it's called The Hidden Messages in the Water. I'm not sure. I will send you the, a copy. I'll, I'll let you know who it was. You could link it in the show notes. I'd be interested in that. I'm, I think what I'm hearing is that whenever I feel this, what you're saying, intuitively, this makes sense and it connects the way that I think that if you have a positive, uplifting, affirmative tone versus if you have a, an angry, frustrated tone that it will impact even the water molecules. I never heard that before, but it, it makes sense that how we sure. show up and the energy we put out there, it's reciprocated and taken on by the things around us. That makes sense to me. Absolutely. I actually, I just worked on something. I was thinking, what, what, what could I offer to give your audience? And I created this acronym R, how are you? Because it's, it's how to create meaningful connection quickly. That's the sort of the template for where I was going with. Okay. One of the things I believe in deeply, and I know you do too, Matt, is how do we just connect with people meaningfully? I know from every conversation, oh, they're home. And if you got to pay attention to them, I'm thrilled to encourage that. The, at the end of the day, we're going to, we can't live on our own by ourselves. The human species is wired for connectivity. And the better we get at connecting and having elevating connection experiences versus frustrating ones, the better life we're going to have and the better life the people we come into contact with will have. And so I was thinking, people say, how are you? How are you? And it's so this platitude thing people just say, but I took the word, the acronym R, A-R-E, and turned it into a useful tool that one could remember. And that R, so A stands for acknowledge, and R is to radiate, and E is to elevate. And when we react to people, and I made a quick short video for you, I'll send you a link to it or a, a, Sweet. a, a place where you could get it. Yeah, it's when we acknowledge or when we're appreciating, I'm sorry, I said acknowledge, appreciate. When we're appreciating somebody for their value, whatever that value might be, and we're ra- that's just one level. When we radiate it, we just took that appreciation and took it next level. So I know in my first interaction with you, Matt, each of them, you literally radiate appreciation. You have this generous, 
sharing energy to you share freely you're very authentic and your whole being comes across and we've never met in person but i literally feel like i know you from the interactions we've had via zoom and people are like yeah no zoom doesn't work what do you mean zoom doesn't work the dynamics of our connection are i believe supported and foundationally anchored by the way you Uh, appreciate and resonate and radiate that appreciation. And then you're very verbal about it. So it becomes real. And I think that if anyone can do this, you just have an exceptional expression of it. And I appreciate that. And I want to radiate that back to you and elevate the conversation are. So this is easy for us to do this back and forth because I think we both have this. What happens when we come into a conversation with someone who maybe they don't have on their on their default thinking. It's not set to appreciate, radiate, elevate. Because this is natural. Us talking is like easy for us to talk. And I think yeah. this is natural. So if someone doesn't have that, so then how might we bring that to the table without being overbearing or sounding judgmental or trying to push them to be someone they're not? How do we bring that out of people, Ezra? Yeah, I appreciate that question. And so I created like a 15-minute tutorial on it to actually help people do this. You could use it at work. You could use it at home. You could do it as a networking event. It's really simple. And you asked me the question, this is where we started from, what does someone not know about me? Mm -hmm. What people don't know is that for, I was in corporate sales. I trained as a coach in the late 90s. I was using it to interact with sales teams all around the country where I was working with. And then on September 1101, as when the planes hit the tower and the towers were burning, I'm an EMT. I was a volunteer EMT for 30 years and EMS chief for 25 of those. And so I I stopped to pray for 90 seconds, maybe two minutes before I went to go pick up an ambulance and get a crew together and head down to to lower Manhattan. And and I still get the chills. I'm telling this to you. I don't, this is what I mean that you're so real. I can tell this without having an internal reaction to it, but it's happening, which is what I just chipped on my words about. So as we were coming, my, my partner, Levi, was in the, we split up, we went in different ambulances. He got hit by debris coming off the tower as it collapsed it shaved the light bar off the side of his truck. And I, in a, what I'll call a PTSI, not PTSD moment. Thank you, Raj Sisodia, for helping me frame the, it's not a disorder, it's a post-traumatic stress incident or moment in time, as opposed to it's a disorder for life. I had a total meltdown. And I had an epic identity crisis of who am I? What's my name? What am I doing here? What's going on? And that was me processing the timeline, if you will. There was enough space from the from September 11, from the recovery effort, getting back on a plane, which was terrifying to me, being back in a business environment. I'm sitting in my hotel room on the floor crying, saying Psalms in my head or out loud, saying, who am I? What am I doing here? And the question that I had was, what difference does it make if I sell another million dollars worth of equipment? What meaning and purpose does my life have? Why did God create me, put me into this world, give me skills, tools, and ability, put me through all of this, to just sell some more technology? Or is there something greater or bigger I must be doing? And it came to my senses. I called home. I'm outcome oriented always. So I needed to go to Israel. I needed to go to the wall. I needed to go pray. That's my place. That's where I go, if you will. That's where I anchor in. And and so she, like, you need to come home, get your passport. I need to see you. Let's make sure you're okay, kind of thing. Like common yeah. sense. I didn't have any sense at that moment. I know. I, maybe I did, but I just knew I needed to get there. And then I went for three days, I stayed for 10. And all I did was really pray, God, listen, help me figure this out. And if I'm not worthy of getting the answer, let me at least trip over the answer. Because sometimes the answer is literally right in front of us and we have no idea. And it just keeps coming over and over. It almost becomes traumatic. Like we keep having the same incident happen to us. 
and we don't understand why. And really, it's just a message waiting for us to receive. And as soon as we get it, oh, we could go to the next level of the game, if you will, yes. use that analogy. And then we could do the next more powerful thing using all of our history skills tools and trauma and pain and hardship and struggle to to go somewhere. The I get back and there's a whole story about how this all lands on me. I was volunteering in a trying to figure out a program to help struggling teens in recovery from substance abuse reintegrate with their families and, and how to interrupt. Life. Are you right? Are we yeah. in the moment of 9-11 right now or is this past that a little bit? Uh, we just went past. So okay. in the moment, did I just shave a timeline on a story? Well, Let me go no, back. No, I, I sent you. There yeah. are so many interesting parts to this. Oh, I love yeah. to look at one at a time. You shared that your partner Levi, were, you were in separate trucks and the piece of debris fell and it like crushed his truck. He survived. <laughs> So, yeah, yeah. It okay. shaved off of the outside, the light bar on the side. That's how okay. close we were. Wow. And the part that I left, the punchline, if you will, thank you for bringing me back in time. I, it's funny. <laughs> okay. I realized later that if, I'd not, if I had not taken that 90 seconds to pray before I left, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Whoa. Because the timeline was so close for where the staging area that we were going to, where all the crushed, smashed ambulances are, yes. are that we would, that's where we were going. And then there's all these little incidents along the way. I choose to believe that moment, that minute and a half to two minutes was the difference for me between being alive and dead. Man, wow. Okay, so, whew, man, please. I, so this is a moment that it, I'm incredibly curious about because I remember... 9-11, I was in Greensboro, North Carolina that day, so I'm far from being there, but you were right there in yeah. like ground zero yeah. as it's happening. So yeah. can, for whatever you're willing to share, can you recount a little more of just your experience from that moment of the prayer through the next, let's just say the next couple hours for the rest of the day, even just what was your experience that day? If you can, if you even remember it, what was that? I, I, it's good that you say that there are parts that I don't remember and there mm -hmm. are parts that pop back as I tell the story. And I'm like, wait, I don't remember that. Now I do. And it comes back. And I guess that's a traumatic response to anything. But so I left. We went to go get the truck. We we loaded up the ambulances. We took extra equipment. We added people. There's all these other nuances to the story. And then we finally get there. The tower, the first tower came down. And then the second tower came. We were running uptown when the second tower was coming down because I looked up. I was like, one tower is not here. The other one doesn't look like it's doing so well. And then as we're having this conversation, are, are we too close? Because we didn't go to the staging area at this point. The second tower started coming down, that rumble, that the ground shook, that cloud. I have incredible pictures from one of the aviation NYPD helicopters of what it looks like from top down. And we just jumped back in and started driving uptown with thousands of people yelling and screaming, running alongside as we're heading uptown. And then one of the guys who was with me, his dad was a chaplain for the Port Authority and the state police. And so his dad went missing and he was bugging out. We got to go find my dad. And they call, this guy is sweet Gluck. He's my, they call him my little brother. They, and people used to ask his dad, the one with the beard or the one without the beard. I was the older son and the younger son, even <laughs> though I'm not his son. And we, so we went back downtown. Now here's a beautiful thing about recognizing coincidence, which I don't really believe in. I was wearing Rabbi Gluck Sr.'s chief hat the white hat with the five stars on it. Yes. Only because when you're going to a disaster, you put on a helmet and we were bringing him his helmet and his equipment. So that was the helmet I had on my head as we were running uptown. We're heading downtown and they're not letting anybody go downtown. And this lieutenant jumps in front of the, and he's like, you can't go there. And then I just roll down the back window. I'm like, hello. <laughs> and he saw the hat. I didn't know this until weeks later when I couldn't figure out why people kept asking me instructions all day long. 
And then I realized I was wearing a chief's hat. I was a little kid, but (laughs) so here I am wearing a chief's hat. I wasn't a kid. I was 20 something years old, 25 ish. I don't know. We have to do the math, but the, uh, no, maybe I was older. I was 30. And then I was going to say here, uh, how old are you today? Because that was 21 years ago. 50. Okay. So roughly 29-ish. Okay. Yeah. And numbers. I'm Lex Dixick, otherwise known as dyslexia to the regular people and ADHD in case you can't figure out our conversations are totally ADHD every time. And oh, so, I, uh, I, I'm trying to keep on script, but I, I want to go down every rabbit hole that we're in. So, Oh, there's a lot of them. There's a lot of them. Let's bring, it back. Let's bring so, it back. You got the hat on. The, you're going so back here we go. Down. We go there. And this is an incredible story. It's actually published in a book. We're trying to find him and it's totally silent. There's this much thick construction dust. Every time you take, it's like walking. Every time you take a staff, plumes of dirt go flying. It's like, how we get literally looking for someone in a haystack? We have no idea where he is. And then we hear over the radio, crackle over the radio, somebody instructing us. And I'm walking with three, four guys at that point. And we get to him and the person chosen, the rabbi had scratch corneas. So he was disoriented. And so we got him into the back of an ambulance and sent him on his way. We tried finding the recordings of the radio transmissions. Can't find him. We tried finding the guy who was talking to us. Can't find him. We, there's a few pieces to this. And then he kept telling a story about a group of firemen holding hands and walking out of some dark place with smoke all around them. And we thought, I don't know, he was in a parked like coach bus, like a block and a half behind the building from point A to point B. I don't know how he got there. And then a few weeks later, and I'm blending stories, fire trucks driving down the street and they stop, they run over and they circle the rabbi and they're hugging him and saying, thank you for saving our lives. And apparently they were in the other tower when the first, or they were in the building next door. I'm not quite sure. And everybody around them didn't make it. Yeah. But somehow they did. It's incredible to say this because objective reality says, wait, that's what? And then the other side is there's a picture where you see me standing in that picture I sent you of the bridge across the road. And I have friends who are EMTs and paramedics who are actually, their equipment, we found it later that day underneath that bridge. In fact, Alan Mandel, who is one of the first paramedics in the Jewish Volunteer Ambulance Corps in New York City, whose anniversary of his death was just a week and a half ago, a week ago, Alan was a dear friend and he died from stage four lymphoma, the September 11 thing. He beat it to to almost three times and then he succumbed to it. And he was there as the tower came down, but there's a part of a bridge that doesn't make sense why it was standing. And our, I might argue, and I don't know if anyone else would, but that, yeah, they, his equipment was right there on the side. Everything around it is gone. And if you see behind, way behind me, there's a bunch of ambulances lined up and they're all smashed. They're all gone. And oh, wow. you can, there's a piece of steel on the left side that you can't really see clearly in this picture. That piece of steel that was sticking up where President Bush came and they put the flag and everything. Yeah. yeah it, that's what's right behind there. So it, 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 there's a, there's some, blackout, if you will, in the timeline. But there was incredible miracles that I witnessed as well in terms of well, survivors and whoever made it out initially made it out finding it was a recovery effort. It wasn't a rescue. And we thought it was a rescue, but it was really a recovery. And I witnessed a level of intensity, commitment, bravery, leadership, self-sacrifice in a way that I don't know that I've ever internalized or felt as strongly and as presently as in that moment. I, I spoke in Fort Bragg on the Army base last year in November to a group of chaplains, and we were talking about leadership and trauma. I was trying to blend the two. I took some of Dr. Danny's work out for our late Dr. Danny, and I was talking about reactivity and creativity and trying to blend it into a trauma model and then talk about how a chaplain shows up in traumatic events or to support people who have been through trauma many times. 
and to be able to notice the reactivity, but also to be able to help people get out of it a little bit, to mm. channel out of it. And it's incredible when you have a, a, um, a Green Beret medic in the room <laughs> who's now a medical school, and I'm talking about what it's like, and I'm like, I'm just saying this like intellectual, and he's like, no, that's really what it's like when you're under fire and guys are falling and you're responsible to try to get them out and you don't know if you're going to make it yourself. And I talked about the fire department lieutenant in the rescue company that that goes in to save fallen firefighters. And it was late in the afternoon. He was getting cramps. And wow, that sounds he, like an intense job. If anything, like the oh, like the most so, but, intense. The person that goes in and saves firefighters in the collapsed buildings, in the fire, in 9-11. Wow. So here's the deal. He's working a whole day. He's completely dehydrated. And there's parts of the story I probably shouldn't share. The punchline is critical. He, so he comes in and he needs some food and he's cramping and he's tired. He's not a, he's not a young mellow. I mean, he's probably in his 40s, I would say. He's in good shape, but he's tired. You can see he's tired. We check his pressure and it's way low. He's totally dehydrated. And the medics put in a large bore IV in the bag, just like the big leader bag, just shoots right in. So they put another one in the other arm, starts emptying out. He's, com he's out of fluid, basically. And they're like, listen, sir, you're going to have to go to the hospital. We just start lines on you or whatever. And he starts ripping the thing out of his arm. I'm like, wait, what are you doing? And I'll never forget this. He said, I'm giving you the shortened version. He said, my job, my team's job is to find fallen firefighters. And I am the only one surviving in my role out of the whole, there's five teams in the city. They're oh, all gone. Wow. I'm the only guy qualified right now. I'm getting emotional telling this to you. I'm the only guy qualified right now to go do the job that needs to get done. I would rather die than go to the hospital right now because I'm going to do my job. Wow. We gave him another liter of fluid, gave him some food and said, come check back in with us every half hour. We'll monitor you here and allow you to do your job, sir. And in my opinion, that's leadership. That's heroism. That's not somebody who's not real. That That's, I got to get, I have a mission. I'm clear about what my mission is and I am going to get it done. And if I, if anyone can take a piece of that and not everybody is a firefighter and everybody's a lieutenant in a rescue company in the fire department, but each one of us as a mom, as a dad, as a son, a daughter, as a, a person in the world, we all have a mission. We all have a God-given mission. We all have a capability. We have a history and a development of skills and strengths and weaknesses, struggles, hardships. And somewhere in the middle of that mix is the perfect mission for each one of us. And if we can treat it like that captain, not a lieutenant, that captain, from the rescue company, the way he treated his mission, the world would be a completely better place. <laughs> uh, amen. Yes. Yes. Uh, committed to the nth degree to serve to get the result, which is to save lives. I'm 100% behind you on this one. That If someone is that committed to the result, whatever it is their chosen, mi chosen mission is, then the world will be a better place when everyone has that level of commitment. And yeah. that's a great example of leadership. I cannot think of a finer example of leadership than that right there, where he put himself in the line to serve others, where mm -hmm. he put himself in the line to get the outcome that he committed to getting. You know, to me, there's no no stronger example than someone who does that to serve others and to get the outcome that they committed to. Yeah, that, that's real drive, motivation, inspiration, everything rolled up in one. So I love it. I call that in the coaching practice, the pill and the peanut butter, i.e. Like modeling so that yeah. everyone else sees it and knows yeah. that is, that's the way that things are supposed to be done as a leader, as 
someone who committed to that role. Wow. Underneath the most intense circumstance imaginable, he showed up and glad we're talking about it. Not, and I want to say this, that I had, I don't know, that, that story wasn't top of mind for me. But when COVID happened, COVID started, and we had to, I taught in two or three different places at the time in a high school for youth who are struggling a little bit and a post high school program for first year college students who, who required a different type of model. And all of a sudden, it's what are we going to talk about now? The world's coming to an end, right? What's next? And suddenly that story showed up and I told the story for the first time, probably in 10 or 15 years. But what I said was, each one of you are the captain of your own future. Each one of you right now has the opportunity and the mission to do the best you can in circumstances that we have never witnessed in our lifetime. And it's interesting that we're, I mean, technically we're past COVID. I don't know. We could argue we're still in COVID. I don't know. The world changed since COVID, that's for sure. But here's the point. I still think it's true. I keep hearing people say winter is coming. There's a recession here. It's not here. But I don't, I don't know. We could, I don't know if we want to argue about this or debate this, but I'm pretty sure the world changed. And I'm also sure it's not going back. The jack came out of the box and it's not folding back in. And I don't know. You know what they say? The only, the only constant is change or something like that. That's it. The world has changed and it will continue to change. And it's evolving rapidly. It's moving really quickly or so it seems. And all the skills and tools that prepared us to get here are great. And we're going to need to adapt. Yes. I also realized, and this was a tough realization for me, that I have a unique ability, having spent the greater part of 20 years mostly working with uh, struggling youth and, of course, a bunch of entrepreneurs who sometimes look the same as struggling youth, just as my kid says they can do more damage, the executives (laughs) I'm talking about. I love the way you (laughs) take the most serious subject now or segue into a little little jab at entrepreneurs. (laughs) Yeah. You know something? I was listening, actually was listening on driving earlier, and I was listening to your interview with Dr. Kelly. Wow, what a powerful interview. And he was talking about our healing and that inner kid who's uh, trying to come out and play or being afraid and compensating. And I would say that Right now, I'd be surprised if we're not all really triggered by what's going on because we don't have so much control. And the less control we perceive we have, the more likely we are to compensate with some mechanism that may not be the healthiest. And it's an opportunity for us to bring our healthiest side forward and say, wow, I'm really triggered. Things are out of my control. Things are changing rapidly. I'm not sure what to do with this. Here's the key. When you were younger or when you were less mature, when you were less knowledgeable, you also didn't know and you figured it out. And you figured it out because you had help from people around you potentially, because you had maybe leaders or elders or parents or somebody around you who was giving you information. And then you figured it out for yourself. And so I think that we as a global community are facing something that probably nobody we know ever faced. They faced other challenges, struggles, and hardships. And then this takes me right into resilience, right? We, the more we can embrace that we don't know, but that we have an inner ability to adapt, the more resilient we're going to be. And then whatever comes our way, we're going we're gonna to figure it out. And we'll trust ourselves enough, just enough, that we'll either get outside support that we require and or we'll just bring something from inside we may not even know we have and bring that forward. Okay. And so if I want to link going back from all the way back in September 1101 to today, 
to me, I watched the world change back then and I had no idea what was coming. And I remember coming home that night, you asked me, what was that like? I came home that night, late at night. I don't remember how late it was. And I was living in Brooklyn and I got back to the, I think I got a ride home and I had to walk two blocks from wherever I was to my apartment. And the city was silent. The city is never silent. Yeah. The city was silent. There were no traffic. There were no dogs. There were no people. I saw one guy walking down the street and I remember feeling terror. Is it safe? Like I was living in a war zone. That's the feeling that I had. And I, I've been to Israel in times when it was risky to be in certain areas. Yeah. Very risky and scary. And it felt like those times. And I got home and I was overwhelmed. My sense of safety and security that I live with and you live with every single day was shaken to its core. And then I said, wait, we need to do something. And then I spoke to my partner and he was a mess. He was able to cry. I, I wasn't crying. I was just, I don't know where I am. And I had, I lived in an apartment building and there were two guys in my building who were studying to become psychologists. And so I walked upstairs the next morning and knocked on their doors. I said, listen, I have a whole squad of EMTs who are pretty shaken. What do you guys do for this? And I learned about critical incident stress debriefing. So we called a debrief and we got okay. together. I learned new skills and tools. And then I trained in critical incident stress debriefing for first responders. And then years later, I had an opportunity where a friend of mine was lifeguarding in a camp for special needs kids and a boy drowned in the pool. It was horrifying. And I, that training kicks in right away. I had language. I knew who to call. We By that evening, like... The investigators were still trying to figure out what, what happened. We had people there sitting with the campers who were in the pool at the time, sitting with the staff, debriefing, talking. We don't know what we don't know, and it's okay to feel what you feel or don't feel, and we'll figure out all the things that you can do in that moment to minimize the intensity of what's going to happen so that it doesn't have the same negative long-term impact. And I think that the whole world really needs some type of critical incident stress debriefing right now, and it feels like we're still in some of it. There's parts of the world that are still in lockdown or going through lockdowns. There are people who, a lot of people are not with us anymore. No. I lost two, not from COVID, but just this year, my my father's younger brother, my uncle was celebrating, it'll be not celebrating, we're acknowledging, I use the word celebration, we're acknowledging the, the passing in January 3rd. So in a couple of days from now, it'll be one year. And then I have a few, well, I'm the oldest, but I had some older brothers in my life. The kid from out of town that stayed in the dormitory, my dad was in charge of the, he was the dean of the dormitory. So the out of town kids would all hang out for years, they were my older brothers. And mm -hmm. one of his main characters that would constantly be in our home past this year, my, I said, my uncle, I had the rabbi that I worked with for the last 19 years. We've done some incredible things together in terms of working in, in within the community and building out programming to support young women with their growth and adaptability. And he got sick and it's not even a year yet. And there's a lot of weight. I realized the other day that I'm walking around like a uh, very sad, not sad. Yeah. I'm sad. I can't function. Sad. There's a heaviness and there's a reality check of age of uh, death is very present for me. Mm -hmm. And it has been. And if I'm going to go AD on you for a minute, three, two and a half years ago, that picture I sent you from June of 20, right, in middle, right at the beginning of COVID. So go one before that. I gave plasma. So I had COVID before we knew it was COVID. And then when they were looking for plasma donations, I had antibodies. So I donated plasma in, I want to say April, May, April, May, probably May of 2020. Okay. And you see me sitting hooked up to the machine there. And then, yep, there I am. And I was happy to go give my plasma. So that's going to help someone's life. Of course, what's the question? You know, it was a little freaky. They put in these things, he donated bone marrow once. So it was easier than that process. And then about a month later, less, two weeks later, three weeks later, my, my right eye, the retina tore in three different places. I almost went blind. 
What? And, okay. Yeah. We'll talk yeah. about challenges then. And I got the picture <laughs> you sent me around You that. said you wanted to talk about challenges. Yeah. So there I am, post-op. Now I've got to wear glasses. And it's been a two and a half year. I'm the best place that I've been since that surgery in yes. terms of my ability to see and function. Okay. But I went from running five, six, sometimes 10 miles in a day to being face down on a couch for 23 and a half hours a day for weeks and weeks on end in recovery from that eye surgery. Yeah. Oh. And then I have to get... Yeah. <laughs> what do you do when you're laying there flat on your face for 23 oh. hours after eye surgery? Almost I feel nothing. like my jury... might just, you get, get excited and positive for a little while, but then it might just start to go a little bit crazy that you've, you're just in this one position all this time. And what was yeah. your experience like? The experience was literally being benched. I felt, I still don't have an answer to this question. I felt like there's a message a really big message I'm supposed to be getting, either something I'm supposed to recognize and see that I'm not paying attention to, mm. or something that I'm thinking about or focused on that I should not be paying attention to, and I need to shift directions. Mm. Talk about meaning and purpose, direction in life. And I don't know that I've figured that answer out really properly yet, but I keep trying. And so one of the things I did, I strapped a camera to the side of a chair, an armchair, put my laptop sideways like this, and figured out how to sit like I had to either be like this or like this. So I was able to lie this way with a neck pillow and then have okay. a camera sh strapped sideways and a laptop on its side and, and interact with people on the computer a little bit. But I was slower. My brain was trying to process two different visual elements, which I'm still, I'm getting better, but it's much better now. And uh, I'm very grateful for the improvements and whatnot. Wow. And so it's a lesson in, another lesson in resilience. We're not in control. Everything is great one minute and suddenly it's not. In, Things are moving, the train's going, and or so you think it is, and then it's not. And then you've got to adapt, and then you've got to figure it out. And then nobody, there's no real answers in front of you. It's not like there's a manual for this. At the beginning of our discussion, you said that uh, you don't want to sound preachy. And I don't think you're sounding preachy at all, but if there were a message for our podcast, it is hope, and you can do it too. And you've hit on that a couple of times in the last few minutes. You hit on that when you're talking about we can bring our healthiest self forward. These challenges that we're in, it's an opportunity to do that. And... I believe your counsel, and I love what you're sharing, is that you can look back in your past and you can see that you, whoever you are that's listening right now, me, you, Ezra, anyone, you can look back and you can see evidence that you have successfully navigated uncertainty and change before. You can rely on that because you've done it. You may not have done it this way, whatever this new, it could be COVID, it could be the feeling from 9-11 that happened, it could be whatever's next, we don't know. But mm -hmm. what I'm really feeling right now is that we have a history in our own lives, every one of us does, that we can go back and just trigger in our mind to think about it, that we have overcome, successfully overcome challenges before. We have yeah. figured it out. And you mentioned you, you could lean in your support structure, your network of friends or family or loved ones, whoever it is, but ultimately we have it inside of us to be adaptive, to be resilient. That's what I'm feeling after hearing your last two stories. And I think that's the critical need for everyone to be able to recognize this in themselves. I don't think that I'm that unique, although I know I'm obviously unique. I think everyone is unique. That's why I say I'm not that unique. I'm special, you're special. Every listener is special, everyone's special. I don't mean that in a trite kind of way. Literally, mm -hmm. each person, every human has a unique identity with a unique value. And the better we get at recognizing and understanding our unique value, and then seeing that everything serves. There's a Hebrew expression, 
which literally translates to everything the Almighty does is for good. So when we see things as, as good, meaning we translate things as good or bad, but if we could understand that what looks like a hardship right now is a gift in some way, and we can see what's the lesson that we're learning from this thing. And full disclosure, I don't always relate to every hardship in my life as if it's good and I'm so thrilled. I can get upset and hurt sure. and sad and whatnot. But it's interesting, after 9-11, one of the things I did was start an ambulance company with a very dear friend of mine who then went on to, we're not friends anymore and I don't want to throw shade at somebody and talk. I start. He did some things that I couldn't live with and we had a parting of ways. And okay. This was like a very dear and close friend. And it felt like the end, like an end of an era or an end of something. It was, it shook me to my car. And as I look back and now with a more, I want to say mature perspective on it, in the moment, it was earth shattering. Yes. And it led to, I literally made two pages, line pages, 50 line items of positive things that developed out of my relationship with him. That if he never would have been in my life, if he never would have ripped me off, if he never would have lied to me, if he never would have caused legal trouble for me, if he never would have stabbed me in the back, if he never would have done all of those things, I wouldn't have that whole list of 50 things. Maybe I'd have it, but I'd have it some other way. Yeah. And so Mm -hmm. what was one of the most difficult moments in my young adult professional life that cost me dearly and both financially and emotionally and relationally in a whole bunch of ways and reputationally, all of that actually led to tremendous wins in my life with independence where I wasn't leaning on him for certain issues and therefore I did bigger and greater things on my own. I had room and capacity to develop bigger and better things. I went on to start another ambulance company independent of him. That was, I was more successful in my second attempt. I built a real estate portfolio because I was burnt out and tired. Well, if I wasn't burnt out and tired, I would have never gone out to go play real estate. I wouldn't have mm-hmm. gotten that experience and made that money. I could keep going. I made other relationships to compensate. And I had room in my life to do other great things as a result of not being tied down to what turned out to be a horrendous outcome in that relationship. Now, I'm saying that not because I'm great. That's not my point. It took me time to get there in the moment. It was painful. Absolutely. The process that I'm feeling right now or I'm observing is that you had this challenging scenario happen. And in the moment, it's hard. You can't tell me in the moment that this is, oh, this is a teachable moment. This is the greatest thing ever right now in the moment. However, sometime after that, you made a list of 50 positive things that came from that challenging experience, and that is the gift that came. And I love the way you framed that, is that it isn't something that holds power over you and holds you down now. It's something that has catalyzed you or been a springboard for greater success or greater impact or greater whatever. And now a short break from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Gratitude for Ezra. It is amazing to me that 9-11 happened 22 years ago. I remember very clearly several key moments in that day, and that day certainly changed the world forever. Over 3,000 people perished that day in the World Trade Center terrorist attack, with even more pain and suffering left in its wake. It was a dark day in our country's history. And out of darkness comes light. Ezra is that light. The oldest of eight kids, Ezra, rushed in to help save people, risking his own life, putting himself at risk for others. 
Thank you, Ezra, for your leadership and for being the light. We love you. We are in your debt. Today's sponsor, Gratitude for Ezra, needed to be stated. His bravery is an inspiration to all of us. Thank you, Ezra. Now, back to the show. And I love the way you framed that. And I'm wondering, where was the first incident in your life or the first time you can recall where you thought that way, that this right here, this is to my advantage or this is a gift? Did that come from faith? Did it come from a mentor? Are you simply just wired this way and you came up with it on your own? Because this is strong feedback for anyone out there who has something that has a grip on them or some old business partner or some old relationship or you have a gripe with someone at work, whatever it might be. What's the advantage that's coming from that? I'm just so curious where you came up with that or how you learned I, that as well. It's, I, I think it's an amalgamation. And if I'm thinking about your question, I'm like, can I give it credit to a person? I probably could give credit to a whole list of people in my life. Okay. I struggled in school. I was a bright kid. I didn't know what dyslexia was as a kid, but I was dyslexic. I like to read, which is odd because I have to work really hard at seeing it. And I was rambunctious to say the least. I got into trouble. I was, in the, I spent a lot of time in the principal's office in elementary and junior high if, in, and high school. And school was not a fun place for me, but I love to learn. And so I'm very, I want to say self-educated. I learned despite what they were trying to teach me. I, and I don't say that, I laugh when I say this. I had some incredible teachers and mentors growing up who couldn't handle me in a classroom, but had great relationship with me outside of the classroom. And kudos yeah. to them for being able to get past my rambunctiousness in a classroom and still maintain some type of relationship and help me build and grow. That takes so a special I, teacher <laughs> to be able to do and, that. And I had a whole bunch of them. I really, I did I very much look back on at some of the influences, the early influences in my life and where the principal would tell me like, you really don't belong here. And then spend two hours talking to me about why I could belong if I was willing to adapt. And I'd be mm. like, I can't adapt. Who are you fooling? And so that's part of the answer. And then there's a The Ethics of the Forefathers, one of my favorite books. I'm a student of the Talmud. The Talmud is a 2,711 double-sided page encyclopedia of Jewish law, history, knowledge, wisdom, and thousands of rabbis' opinions from, I don't know, two and a half, 3,000 years ago-ish. So it, it's around the second, it was transcribed around the second Temple era, which is minimum 15, 1800 years ago. It probably took four or 500 years to get it all figured out. And remember, back then it wasn't so easy to get everything written down. A pen and paper wasn't a common thing. And I study that every day. And I study that since I'm a kid. But I, in 2005, I made a commitment. There was a, okay, so there's a rabbi back in Warsaw, Poland in 1923, who came up with a, a methodology to get this whole encyclopedia done under read, if you will, and translated okay. each person. If you did a double-sided page each day, it takes about 45 minutes to an hour, sometimes longer, sometimes shorter. And that's high-level understanding. That's not depth. And in 1923-ish, I think, he started this thing where there's a seven and a half year cycle, 2711 divided by 365, you'll end up with seven and a half years. And I, so I started in 90-something. I tried it for a little bit, and it didn't talk to me. There wasn't enough depth. In English, you'd say there wasn't enough meat on the bone. It was too quick. Yep. It was flying past me. And I had spoken to one of my mentors and rabbis at the time, and he said, if you want it, you could try it. And then I came back to him like 60 days later, 90 days later. I was like, this doesn't work. And he laughed at me. I said, why are you laughing? He says, I knew it wouldn't work for you. You have too much depth to you. You're not gonna, it's not going to resonate with you. But then my life got much more complicated. I was traveling for work, and there were all these things going on. 
I said, I remember taking on that commitment that I was going to do this for seven and a half years. And I was freaking out. Seven and a half years. I'm an ADD guy. Seven and a half years. Every single day, I'm going to have to like, <laughs> oh my gosh. And then on weekends, luckily this weekends, I say, I watch it go by all week. And then I double down on the weekend for three, four hours to catch up what I missed. But the beauty of having this is no matter where I go, anywhere in the world with the Jewish community, I can find a group that's studying the exact same page where I'm up to and they're up to. And the other thing is I can stop someone who's studying this thing. There's thousands, tens of thousands of people that, that, that study this every day. I can have a real conversation with someone about something that we're both studying and learning and growing from. Plus, it influences my being. So the Talmud is based on... So in 05, I made this commitment and I've maintained it. I'm still doing it. So it's now I've gone through the whole cycle two times. And in, in January of 20, right before, was it right before COVID? January 20, there was a, the, the, uh, this big, large Jewish organization in New York rented MetLife Stadium okay. on New Year's Day. And they had, they filled up the stadium with people who were studying the Talmud from the greater tri-state area. It's an incredible, go Google it. It's incredible. Wow. It was an incredible event. Going backwards. So in Ethics of the Fathers, the Forefathers, it says something like this. Somebody's, I was going to say it in Hebrew, but that won't mean anything. Don't try to calm somebody down when they're angry. Okay. And don't try to console somebody when they're when the dead person that they're mourning is right in front of them, which essentially means give a person a little bit of space, hold space for them in the moment, but then don't try to calm them down this second or don't try to make it okay this second. And if you think about the sort of laws of Jewish mourning force you to sit the Shiva the seven days to really, and even within the seven days, there's the first day, there's the first three days, there's the seven days. The What do we call the uh, cycles of grief and psychology today seem to be tapping into something that the rabbis formulated two and a half thousand years ago-ish in terms of this is how we relate to someone, a family member passing. And mm. this is the process, how we get through it. And then there's 30 days and then a year. And then So the idea behind this, and back to what you were saying, is I think that one of the big things that talked to me all the years was means don't judge someone until you you were in their place. Mm. And I used to have a sign on my door that said, you're entering the least judgmental 1,500 square feet in Brooklyn. And what I would stand on and really plant my flag on, declare, if you will, is I have no idea what it's like to be you in your life. And therefore, I have no right to judge your decisions and your choices because I didn't walk your shoes. I didn't live in your time zone. I didn't, I'm not, I'm not a teenager today. I'm not an executive dealing with the stress. I'm not married to your spouse. I'm not female. And there's all these things. I'm not, I'm me. I'm not you. And I'm not this person's experience. If I can show up and hold space for you in some real way with respect, with compassion, with empathy and witness you in some way. And I don't know if I use the word witness so much in the past, but I'll use it today and just say, what choice can I help you and support you to make? And I don't want to say better choice because there's a judgment in the better, although sometimes I do say better. The point is that you, the, many times I'm sitting with someone, whether it's a teenager or an executive, and I know I connected the dot there, we feel trapped when we're trapped, when we feel trapped. How's that? Okay. And so we don't feel like we have a choice because we feel trapped. We've exhausted all options. And when we have somebody outside of ourselves that says, someone trapped in jail, can't let themselves out. They need the person on the outside with the instructions or with the key to help them get out. So the person looking in sometimes has the ability to help the person in it find a new option, a new path, a new choice. And the first thing that, and this is not so revolutionary, but it, to me, it's a cornerstone. If I don't have to have the answer, even if I do have an answer, which I don't always have, sometimes I don't, if I'm able to help this person 
in their unique in their uniqueness and their specialness mm-hmm. figure out what they want figure out what they want figure out where they want to get to i then might have the ability to help them make a better choice to get them there faster and in fact that's been my trajectory in my history i worked with teens struggling in recovery they were using and they were going to rehab and coming back and we were putting in all this time and effort to get them back to what I'll call baseline. And I said, this is insane. We're spending hundreds of thousands of dollars in years to get them to move forward when in fact, we should be spending a fraction of a fraction on prevention. Nobody will ever get here. And I will tell you that statistically in that cohort is the highest level of self-inflicted injury and suicide. Mm -hmm. We had a micro, micro, like our numbers are incredible for how everybody matters. And I don't want to say that we lost some very good souls. But for the numbers of who we were working with versus who we were losing, we were saving. We have better success rates than any rehab in the country, anywhere. Mm. And the reason for that, I think, was it's not that they want to die. They just can't imagine what it's like to live with their pain. They don't. People don't want to kill themselves. They just don't see a way to live with the pain and the suffering. Whether it's a kid who went through some hurtful stuff, whether it's an adult who got through all that hurtful stuff and now it all hit them in the head because this stuff doesn't go away. Mm -hmm. I remembered the other day someone was, I was talking to someone who works with a special operations, military, people coming out of special ops, special forces people who have to reintegrate with regular life. And it's not easy. And they've got, they've seen and done things that we don't understand. I don't think I do. And there's a huge number of veterans that are dying every day. And I, it might be, for this exact reason, they just don't know how to live. Mm. And if so, anyhow, the, the conversation we were having is can I take what I learned so many years ago and have developed over these years and apply it with our veterans? And I said, yes. I don't know when or where or how, but I'm pro anyone who's dedicated and committed to put their life on the line to protect and support this country. Yes. How could I say no to such a request? I went on a tangent for a second, but coming yes, back. Yes, you did. And Ezra, now yeah. that we're coming back, I'm going to give you a timer because. Go. We're going to wrap up our conversation here in a few minutes. So please conclude your thought. And then we're going to go to the the lightning round of questions. So please finish your thought. You still remember it. Yeah, of course. How can I remember it? The point that I want to say is that (laughs) I believe, you you mentioned the word hope before. Yes. I believe that everyone has internal struggles. And I believe everybody has a capacity to learn and grow beyond their internal struggles. And that's a core lesson. And the... By giving people, by providing an option of, by providing options, by giving people some other choice point that they may not have been aware of, you literally are giving them, you're breathing life into them. And when I'm saying this to you, Matt, I know you already do this. And most people don't realize out there in the world that they also, anyone can do what I'm saying. Even if you don't feel like you know what I'm talking about, you don't feel like you're a professional, you don't feel like you have the skills and tools you do. Because if you see someone going all the way back to the top of this conversation, you, the listener, if you can view somebody through the lens of this unique individual, bring some amazing value to the world in some way. And let's not confuse people's behavior and their role with who they are. There's a distinction for me between the behaviors and the role. Talk about a parenting moment, and I'll close with this thought. My youngest had one, was fighting with her older sister one day. That was normal. And she had pulled her hair, made her cry. And my older one was like, hey, why is she spoiled? Why did she get away with this? Or whatever she said. And I was sitting by the table and I said to the younger one, hey, come here, I need to talk to you. And she said, no, I'm not coming. I'm like, hey, come here. I need you to come here and I want to talk to you. And she's like, nope, you're going to penalize me in some way. You're going to punish me. I said, actually, I want to give you a hug and say, I love you. 
because right now you might not be feeling that love and I want to give it. She said, no, you don't. You hate me. You're upset at me. You did something wrong. I misbehaved. There was a whole long conversation that was taking place. She was like halfway up the stairs and I'm sitting at the table saying, nope, come here. I got it. I just want to, I just want to love on you. I just want to give you a hug. And the older one who was crying three minutes before is now laughing hysterically as this debate is going on, daddy and little one. And finally, she comes really close, but she's like hesitant. She's you're tricking me. She said, you're going to trick me. I said, no, I really want to give you a hug and say, I love you. Maybe I'll give you a kiss too. She's like, no, you hate me. How could you love me? This doesn't make sense. I did something wrong. You're upset at me. And I said, it's true. I am upset about what you did, but I still love you and I will always love you. Now, come here. Let me give you a hug and a kiss. And later we can talk about what you can do to improve. And she's never, ever pulled her sister's hair again, ever since that conversation. And so it's a parenting moment. It's an executive leadership moment. And it's a life skill moment. Anyone can take that little vignette of a story. If we can stay grounded, centered, and aware enough of ourselves and see the person, not the behavior, see the attributes of that person, see who they really are to the core of their being, and really connect with that, and just ignore the behavior, at least momentarily, and say, okay, how can I provide in some way support for this amazing person in front of me? That will be life-giving. Anyone can save lives. Wow. Anyhow. Wow. wow. Okay. I hope that ties it all together nicely. Uh, that does. It, it tied like a beautiful symphony to me because you mentioned the ADD word earlier and I am totally in that boat with you. In fact, I have a question for you. What is the best thing about having a conversation between with someone else who has ADD? You can go anywhere and just get to anywhere. So yeah. here's the challenge. Non-AD yeah. people, can, especially I want to say type one accountant styles, get very nervous with ADD people. Because they need a linear connected dot, A to B to C, beginning, middle, end. And you and we could literally start anywhere and have gone anywhere in between. And it'll be a perfectly synchronous conversation because we think asynchronously. And we don't need that linear connection of dots. But if we want to operate with the people who do need a connection of dots, we, the ADDers, have to learn how to tighten it up and at least bring it back down. I call it from the sky to the streets, the sky to the streets, to come back down to, okay, what next? Here's where we started. Here's where we passed through or ignore that, the middle, that we'll call it the messy middle. And here's where we are. And then the thing that I need to remember, maybe more than anybody else, and this is my lesson, is what's the next action step? Because I get so excited about the connection, the relationship, the dynamics of the conversation, that I don't always say, okay, now how am I going to put this into action? Now, me personally, I'm constantly in action. It's not such a challenge for me. I'm, I'll do something with it. But the average person that I'm talking to may not, and may just be overwhelmed. And if my goal was to elevate and inspire and give something and infuse life mm -hmm. and give them something better, I've shortchanged them. In sure. fact, and this is really my last point on this, I have found that even one single random conversation with someone will pay dividends over, over time. And the next time I interact with them, they'll be sharing some outcome based on that conversation. They don't always remember, but my association with them is in that conversation. And so when they tell me the result, I grin internally because I'm like, yeah, it worked. And when I realized this, I don't know what you want to call it, like skill, power, I don't know, the secret energy that, that would happen, it's okay, how often can I notice it? And now I game it for myself. Let's, mm -hmm. let's remember what we were talking about because the next time, let's see it like, get there. Will this young person become 
more proficient in this way? Will this executive or will this leader be more something that we're talking about? Will they adapt this little thing that I, not I, but that we talked about and shared about? And then this option that became available, I think I'm like the options guy. Not an option. I'm trader, completely you know connecting saying. with right. everything you're saying right you now. It, and kind right? of you, if you think back to that movie X Men, Doctor Professor Xavier was in that machine and he could just think and he could see where every person in the world is if he just thought about him. I view all of my relationships like that. I see everyone that I have these conversations with. And where does this come? Where did that go? Where did these actions go? Where did that go? So I'm with you in the moment. Let's go to the wrap up three questions here, Ezra. Number one. What does eternal optimism mean to you when you hear that term? I think it goes back to what I said to you earlier. Everything serves. Everything has a purpose. And we just are, we need to tap into that. We need to look for that. We need to find the good in each thing and each person and each event. And then we're living in a place. And if we can find gratitude for that, then we're living on a different playing field. The game has changed tremendously. Thank you. What's a favorite movie or song that inspires you? So I don't, I don't watch movies very often. So I don't know how to, I don't live in that world. I grew up without a TV. I used to go to my grandparents. That's where I had exposure. The, it's funny because people are talking about it now. My grandparents had a VCR with Top Gun, Tom Cruise back then, the original. Yeah. I know there's a new one that came out now. I haven't seen it. I don't know. But that certainly was inspirational at some level. And the song <laughs> is a Hebrew song, Ani Mamen which means I have faith. It's sung by different people in different ways, but it's a moving, I don't know, inner tribute to recognizing that God's running a perfectly orchestrated world and has not let go of it and said, here, I just set up the parameters and now it's running on its own. Uh-uh. There's a constant involvement to move the thing forward and move the pieces on the board, if you will. And yes, I believe in choice and that we have choice, although I recognize that most of our choices are actually not ours. Okay. Um, okay. It, that, there's a nuance in there. So, yeah. Let me ask you the last question, lightning round. I need to make this question more accessible. I didn't realize that people didn't have TV, TVs back in the day. <laughs> so, that, that I need to make it accessible. So, thank you for that coaching. Sure. I would go to the last question would be, what is a book, aside from the Talmud, because you've shared that extensively. So, oh, yeah. outside of the Talmud, what is a book that's had an impact on you or that is on your shelf right now? Just some influential book for you. I, easiest. I have a ton of books. I read a lot. Ben Hardy, Dr. Ben Hardy has a whole bunch of books out recently. Be Your Future Self Now is the one I'm really deep into. And actually, he I have a pre-release copy of 10X is Better Than 2X, which is his next book coming out. There's a link where you could pre-order it. I'm not sure where it is, but I'm making my way through to PDF really quickly. I put together a group of leaders that I either gave them or encouraged them to buy this book. And then we went through it together and we created some plans for what this next year could look like for us and the people that we want to impact. Mm-hmm. And absolutely, if someone's looking for something current, Dr. Ben Hardy's, all of his stuff is great, but this Be Your Future Self Now, and I think is it's an incredible piece of work that really helps let go of where you're coming from, not in a getting rid of it, but moving to the next level and iteration of who you are. So that's it. And Thank you. Yeah, that, that was, that's amazing. And then that inspires me to go get the book now. So yeah, I, yeah. I appreciate that. And then this is not in the regular lightning round, but this will be the last question. Then I'll ask you, how do we find out more about you and whatnot? So first, okay. you have this amazing, curious George looking monkey hanging in the background back here. So can you give us like a minute or so? What is the significance of this monkey that's hanging from the rafters up here? So a monkey friend who actually requires a name of some sort. I think we're just calling a monkey for now. I I don't, about a year ago, maybe just about a year ago-ish, 
there was a moment where I was just hitting a wall was between surgery one and surgery two on my eye. My brain was totally burnt out because I was, I, my eye sees like this at this point. They don't, they're, they're not exactly in sync. And I had minus 10 and a half vision that was blurry with this one working well. So my, it was like gas break and driving was really difficult. And so these glasses are, there's a prism. They make, they trick the light, they bend the light so I can see this way. And then reading was difficult and I like to read. So like study, it was really hard to stay on top of my game and be mm -hmm. able to function. I'd need to lie down sometimes two, three times just in an 10 hour day to, to make it energetically. And then I'd sleep for 10, 11 hours and be exhausted in the morning. It was like my brain was really burnt. Think about not seeing, like I have, I've learned so much about visual stimuli and how the brain connects to the optic nerve and all this other stuff. But so the monkey was to remind me to just be a little bit more playful, huh. that we're just monkeying around, just remind myself. And then the other thing was the monkey's like grasping, like holding on by his fingertips. And that even if I feel like I'm just holding on by my fingertips, I could still swing like the monkey. And so literally it was meant for me as a metaphor that no matter what tension or what struggle was going on, I can still roll with it and still be playful with it in some way. And of course, it makes for great conversation on any Zoom where someone's willing to ask me about it because a lot of people look at it and don't say anything. And then at some point, they'll feel comfortable enough to ask. And it became a great conversation starter. I can just be like, and monkey too, mm -hmm. and then get laughs from very intense conversations. And so it, it was yeah. helpful. It was really for me. And now it's just become, I kind of want to get, I have another one here. I'm not sure what to do with it. I met somebody who's, her name is Judy Fox. She's a LinkedIn trainer or something. And she gave me this little fox, which is hanging out here. And I'm trying to figure out how to incorporate that. I can't hang it, but we'll figure it out. It's here. And I'm like, I don't know what to do with it, but foxes are sly, but they're also creative creatures. They find solutions to things. I don't know, make something up that can link me. And then I like the idea of tactile reminders mm -hmm. of creativity, of ingenuity, of adaptability, of resilience. So anything that really helps me get there. After, can I go all the way back to the beginning? You asked a good question. After September 11th, for about a year and a half, I had a whole deck of pictures that I took or friends took that day. And some of them just brought me right back there. But my trauma therapy, good or bad, I don't know, was to have this stack of pictures right next to my laptop on my desk. And I would look through this deck multiple times a day. Okay. And every time I would feel the emotions or get stuck or get lost or needed to distract, I would go back to that picture deck. And... I would just be in it and be in it and be in it. And at some point it lost its hold over me. And I have some of them, I've done workshops on it. I can share some of them that you have some incredible pictures, but it was helpful for me. I don't know if it was smart or not smart. I don't know, but it was useful. Maybe it was exposure therapy I was doing. I don't know if it was therapy. I don't, somehow that's what I felt I wanted and needed. So now I've moved beyond pictures of destruction and I've got a monkey and a fox and I'm good. Awesome. Wow. Way to tie it all together. How can we find out more about you, your website, links, social media, just anything that we can find out more about you and what you're up to? So I'm on LinkedIn a little bit. LinkedIn is Ezra Max. I can send you what the exact link is. I'm not sure. And then I've, I'm going to create a page for your listeners, Matt. It's going to be ezramax.com forward slash connecting. And in there, I'm going to drop this mini training that I created the other day to help people create meaningful connection quickly. And it, it'll come with a worksheet and a little bit of instruction. And like I said, it's, a, it's useful at home, at work, or somewhere out there in the world. So ezramax.com forward slash connecting, 
and with a G at the connecting with the G at the end. And there was something else I was going to say. I don't remember. Yeah. I'm a work in progress and I'm happy to be a work in progress. And sometimes people think I need to have this all figured out. I'll be the first one to say I am still figuring it out and it's okay. And you'll be okay. <laughs> I think so. I, you've given us so much wisdom today and I just love the way a conversation is going. And this, is, this has been one where it has just flowed and wow, look at the time. How'd that happen? So, I don't know. Ezra, man, I appreciate you. Love you. Thank you so much for coming on today. And Thank I wish you the best, my friend. Thank you. Keep doing the awesome work you're doing. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Eternal Optimist podcast. You can check the show notes for information about today's episode. And please share the show with that friend who is wanting to think bigger. We'll see you next time.